Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, live from Wimbledon, where we this week are having a walking tour of the grounds led by Alexandra Willis, who is the Director of Communications and Marketing for the All England Club. We did one of these episodes before, back in 2015, uh, and wanted to revisit it. It was one of our favorites, very popular, and a great sort of hopefully colorful, vivid audio insight into what it's like to be at Wimbledon and some of the really hallowed parts of Wimbledon as well. Uh, this is the 100th anniversary of this site where Wimbledon is held and the 100th anniversary of Centre Court, as you may have heard and you'll hear more about during these championships for sure. So, hope you enjoy. Very pleased to be joined by Alex Willis once again at Wimbledon. We are doing another walking tour of the grounds as we did for the first time in 2015, seven years ago when Centre Court was a spry, only 93 years old at that point, seven years on, Centre Court is turning 100. We're standing right next to the plaque that says Centre Court was opened by His Majesty King George V, patron of the All Long Tennis Club and Croquet Club, on Monday, 26th of June, 1922. It's happy 100th to Wimbledon. Thank you very much, Ben, and how nice it is to see you. I think last year there was, uh, well, were you even here last year? I was year? here, but we barely, you know, kind of just through plate glass the whole tournament, really. Yeah, we were sort of all in literal isolation, all bubbled up. So it's such a joy to have everyone back here at, at Wimbledon. The place is looking pretty beautiful, I mm -hmm. hope you'll agree, yep. although we've got a gentle breeze uh, <laughs> flying around us as we speak. Um, and as you mentioned, the sort of big story for us this year is that this wonderful stadium we're standing outside of is 100 years old. And it's just fascinating to look at these words written here on this plaque um, and think about how long ago 1922 was. Yes. No, that sounds ridiculous. But you think of all of the things that this court has witnessed over that 100 years. Yeah. And also what it might yet witness in, in the years to come. And that's very much how we're approaching Wimbledon this year. Yeah, no, absolutely no. I mean, Wimbledon this time point two, just a few years after World War One had ended, before the Great Depression. A lot of things had happened then, but tennis was gaining form. And I guess the tournament used to be on uh, the championships. It used to be at Warple Road, which is the old facility. And then the story I've heard, I mean, feel free to correct this with your knowledge of Wimbledon as well, but basically the sort of demand for, for tickets grew to the point where they needed a bigger venue. There were nascent sort of stars in the game, like Bill Tilden and Suzanne Longlong was a big one back then, who sort of drove demand, and thus uh, Center Court was, was created. And it's sort of the test of time ever since. No, you're exactly right. And it's a really important reminder that we're talking a lot about Centre Court, but it is, of course, 100 years of this whole grounds yeah. um, and this whole estate. And actually, if you can visualise, we're just turning around and looking behind us now. Mm -hmm. um, there's an area... Uh, south of Centre Court. South yeah. of Centre Court. Um, sort of St Mary's Church Spire is, is, is over in that direction. Number two court is over there. And we've actually renamed this whole part of the grounds the Centenary Garden okay. as a tribute to um, that, that sort of anniversary of, of, of the whole site. What's, of course, fascinating is that in 1922, the attachment to Centre Court was a sort of open stand. Yeah. Um, and on the other side, you had this lovely visual of people just sitting out on the grass having tea. And that was really it. There wasn't really anything else to it. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, we're in the middle of, you know, a whole landscape of courts uh, all around us and all the planting and so on and so forth. And that's that's the modernization part, I suppose. So there were some specific modernizations, maybe this, we'll get to this when we get inside the actual center court itself, but some specific things, sort of renewals. Don, you mentioned the renaming of the, the courts here, but what sort of other things did Wimbledon want to do to try to 
celebrate this uh, this milestone and to reinvigorate uh, perhaps a building that is you know turning triple digit ages momentarily. Yes, yeah, so you'll you'll see um, that what we've tried to do is pay tribute to Centre Court's history but look to the future at the same time. And so in paying tribute to its history, um, our wonderful team in, in the library got out some of the old photos of, of Centre Court as it was initially and noticed that there was this particular architectural feature which has a technical name that, of course, I've forgotten. Um, but let's call it cross hatches okay. for now. And these cross hatches used to run all around the inside of, of the bowl. Um, and we thought, well, what a lovely touch. We're not quite sure why it went away. It might have gone away when Centre Court was bombed. Yes. Another one of its uh, little accomplishments. And, uh, and so the team, um, the architectural team, have, have reintroduced that feature, um, which is really lovely. At the same time, thinking about um, how do we also modernise the way that the court is set up and one of the things that you'll remember, again, from images of years gone by, in life before the roof, was the famous tent with the court cover that would mm. go up mm-hmm. in the middle. And that tent required quite a lot of machinery at either end to raise a very big pole to then hold up the cover. Yeah. And uh, technology has improved it since we um, put that together. And you know that most of the outer courts have inflatable covers. Yeah. So in putting in place an inflatable cover on centre court, obviously there's also the roof, we were able to create a lot more space at the back of the court. Hmm. So in going through that process, everyone said, well, if we're making this change anyway, what else could we do? Why don't we change the way that players arrive on the court rather than them sort of coming out into a wall and then having to walk around the wall and then sort of around the side of the court how wonderful would it be what drama and theatre would it create if they actually came under the Kipling quote through the double doors and straight out onto the court and how amazing would it be for the crowd at the opposite end of the court to see those players coming and and immediately the buzz and the ripple effect and the atmosphere would would begin so that's probably one of the other um, biggest changes we've also just neatened the whole thing up we've redone all of the signage all of the wayfinding it's all been painted and uh yeah she looks lovely on she her 100th birthday she does do you want to go anywhere do you want to go inside center court let's go or? inside okay, yeah sure yeah so it has basically people will see it i think that's one of the things that's been most immediately noticed by people is this walk on to center court and going basically straight under the center of the royal box and straight in rather than the sort of like you said slightly meandering path was it ever like that in the past before do you know is that or is that something that's a new thing uh for the club we think it's we think it's new mm-hmm. um as ever it's never great to say it absolutely never was because we're only as good as our records yeah um, but which yeah. are very good here by the way well yes you're, you're kind the Wimbledon compendium remains a you know a, a uniqueness and a wonderful uniqueness um but yeah so I can't say for sure but but certainly since we've had the setup that that, that we've had it, it's it's a big change so we're standing now in the, uh, in the clubhouse lobby, which is, of course, the famous area with, with the trophies. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I can tell you that um, the trophy cabinet is going to have a new addition during the championships, uh, which oh. are these very special platinum coins. Have you heard about these? I have not. So another way that we're celebrating Centre Court's 100th birthday, um, but also the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, 
is that we've had bespoke platinum coins made for the finals weekend coin tosses. Oh. And one side of the coin features the Centre Court 100 logo, and the other side features the Queen's Platinum Jubilee logo, which was designed by a university student named Edward. And apparently Edward was very chuffed about his design being used at Wimbledon, and we're delighted he's going to be coming at finals weekend to see so these coins are going to be on display here for guests to see when, when, when they arrive. They're not here yet. Um, but we have, of course, got the wonderful um, Gentleman Singles Champion Trophy, the Challenge Cup. Yeah. And then my absolute favourite, the Venus Rosewater Dish, which I genuinely think is one of the most stunning and recognisable trophies out there. You get closer to it? I don't get, I don't get, I don't get that close to the Venus oh, Rosewater yes. Dish that often. Um, yeah, so it's on a little pedestal here, and you see most recent champion... Ash Barty's name there, or Miss A. Barty. Um, actually, that reminds me while we're in this room, maybe I can mention the wall. Yes. The, the wall changing over there as well. I don't want to stop, I don't want to pull away from the trophy just yet, but it's very shiny and very detailed, and you see the women, whoever wins it, especially for the first time, and even repeat winners, you know, the Williams sisters, certainly I've seen both of them taking really a close look, and there's an incredible amount of detail in the uh, engraving and carving of the dish, where the earliest champions, I guess, were written inside the interior of the dish, inside the bowl of the dish, if you will. And then I guess the more recent ones are on the underside, right, of the... Yes, of the a few years ago we ran out of spa space on the, uh, uh, the dish or the plate. Mm -hmm. I think it's a plate, formally. Um, salva, sorry, or dish. There you go. Rosewater dish, yeah. Read captions, uh, lesson <laughs> to all. Um, and so we, uh, we created this plinth um, for, for the trophy to go on. Yeah, no, it looks, it looks great. And then also in this cabinet, you've got the doubles trophies, the mixed doubles trophies, and then a few other things that have been donated to the club from, from time to time. Uh, there used to be a sword in one of these, but oh, wow. that seems to have been moved. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a very inspiring place standing yeah. here. Um, and this, to our left, is the stairs where the champions mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and the competitors on the centre court walk down before they, they go out onto the court. Yeah, this is very cool. This is obviously not an area that's open to the public. And so I've been, I think I've been here once before, maybe, this room. I think last time I was here with you, pretty sure. And so just seeing this staircase that I've seen so many times on TV, it does really have this sort of dramatic, like, whoa, and, and knowing what's on the other side of these doors, which have also been redone. The doors themselves, right? That, no, no, is that, no. That's the same, that glass? That's the same, yeah. No, okay. So um, there's this sort, sort of frosted, frosted glass. glass yeah. um, it's normally open, so obviously when you're watching on TV, they're, they're normally open. Gotcha. Um, and, uh, and are we allowed to tell the listeners that you've put on a jacket, especially for this experience? <laughs> yes, which I remembered. I remember there being jacket rules in the clubhouse, so <laughs> I felt very on top of things here. Uh, so, so we're looking now, we're thrown on, on each side by the champion's uh, singles walls, which are here and people will have seen. Uh, the men's one to our left, but we should probably talk about the women's one on the right, because that's the one that has gone through some some changes here. And this is something I wrote about uh, for the New York Times a couple years ago with Karen Krauss. We did a story about it um, that made it on the front page on a fairly slow news day, I will say, um, about uh, the wall at that point sticking to the traditions of having sort of uh, what they call courtesy titles of Miss or Mrs. and using married names for the female champions, which to me, or in the story we said, made for understanding how many times a certain person won, meant that you had to understand that person's you know, marital history. You had to understand that you know, C.M. Everett in 76 was this, and 74 was the same person as Mrs. J.M. Lloyd in 1981, which might not be immediately obvious to, to people. And now this year, for the first time, the wall has been uh, redone and sort of updated to just be more uniform with the men's wall. 
uh, just first initials and, and last names. Yeah, how, how did this change uh, come about? This is obviously something that's been sort of women's nomenclature. Wimbledon's been very consistent for a long time. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know from previous conversations we've had that we feel that it's such a, a, a brilliant thing to have a sport that is equal yeah. and where men and women compete on the same stage. And, uh, you know, credit to Billie Jean King always uh, for her efforts in making that a reality. And it feels very fitting that it's the 50th anniversary of Title IX mm -hmm. and, and everything that, that she's done, not just for women, but, but for, for people, anyone, anywhere who wants to play sport. Um, and so, you know, over the years, we've been making sure that some of the inconsistencies that existed in how men and women were, you know, treated here at Wimbledon were addressed. You know, a few years ago, we, we balanced out the way we announced players on court. Mm -hmm. we, we thought about how their names appeared on the scoreboards. And, um, you know, as with all of these things, it, it, it takes time to, to get to everything. And um, it just felt like this was a good, good opportunity uh, to to change the way that, that women are referred to. I mean, it's really interesting as a as a married woman myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I I I would like to be known by my name and, yeah. and my name as as I wish it to be presented. Obviously, um, you know, what we're not trying to do is is change the custom of the time. And 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 in certain years, people were referred to um, you know in a certain way, and that was very well understood and, and, and traditional. And those, you know, pieces of history still exist in the Wimbledon Compendium, and, and if mm -hmm. anyone is interested in, in that, it, it's there. But in terms of what this honours board represents, which is a snapshot of the women that won, mm -hmm. this was what we believe to be uh, the right way um, to commemorate them. Yeah, actually, I remember doing the story. It actually had been a long time, just coincidentally, completely since a married woman had won Wimbledon. It hadn't happened, in, I think, since Chris Ever in '81. Just as if we're doing the story, being like, oh, it's sort of a weird coincidence. So it hadn't been necessarily something fresh yet, but it's something. And I think that with something I think Wimbledon has done admirably over these last several years is sort of listen to critiques or, or people saying this certain thing is maybe no longer as, you know, quaint or charming as it could be and adjusting. And even that goes to the center court behind us. Um, this year, for the first time, they're doing practice sessions out there. So I was watching. Uh, today was women, uh, Iga Sviantek practicing with Begu, and then Serena Williams with her, with her hitting partner. And uh, just after, I guess that's what happened, seems pretty direct response to what happened last year with uh, center court proving especially slippery in those opening rounds. Yeah, I mean, um, you're completely right in that I think the, and it's such a privilege, but, but an ongoing challenge working for an organization that has such long-held traditions and those traditions are its strength mm -hmm. because they provide character they, pro they provide differentiation is making sure and checking in on those traditions and making sure that they're still relevant and we're in this brilliant world where we've got so much technology we've got so many ways to do things differently thinking about how we use what we learn to make sure that those traditions are still relevant and you know the team here, you know, absolutely took on board what happened last year with the very unusual weather conditions yeah. and thought, well, it's probably, it's in all of our interest not to leave it to the chance of the weather and, and what else could we do whilst also recognising that Centre Court has to last for 14 days and we want it to look beautiful yeah. on day 14 while acknowledging it's a living surface yeah. and so it, it will always look like it's had people playing tennis on it. Um, and, and I think it's, it, yeah, it, it's been very interesting, the, the reaction from the players who've, who've competed um, or, or practiced on, on the court so far, because on the one hand, it looks very unusual, 
because we've never seen it before ever. Yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, hopefully they will all feel that they've really benefited from from the experience. Serena Williams was one of the players who slipped and I think re-aggravated an injury she had there last year. Today she was on there with her coach and they were like setting up cones for target practice. And I was thinking, has anyone ever set up cones for target practice on center court before in the hundred years of center court? Possibly not, because during the tournament or during the championships, I should say, get my Wimbledon lingo correct, uh, the players don't practice on center court ever. All practices are on outer courts. Um, so, yeah, I was thinking maybe that was a, a first. I think you've just come up with a new entry for the compendium. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, other thing, uh, we mentioned 14 days of play. That's also a difference because Middle Sunday uh, is now no longer a rest day for the first time preordained this year. Um, that decision is probably a long time coming. How different is that and how much of a, is that a challenge or a blessing for the tournament not having a, a day off both for grass rest purposes and human rest purposes and all these sorts of things. Yeah, and, and again, that decision is another really good example of, of looking at something that's always been the way it has been yeah. and re-examining why. And, of course, the tradition of not playing sport on a Sunday originated for religious reasons. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's obviously something that, that's changed over time. Then, you know, naturally, for the, for the ground staff, what an unbelievable opportunity to not just give the court a rest, but give it really significant uh, drink yeah. and, and give it a lot of water. Um, but at the same time, again, as all of our habits are changing, uh, the, it felt like the opportunity we were missing out on to give children, to give young adults, to give people who are not as available during the working week. Yeah the chance to actually be here and engage with Wimbledon, it's a constant risk-reward debate, isn't it? So the, you know, and, and at the same time, the techniques that the ground staff now have at their disposal to look after the grass, to understand how the surface is playing, to use the roof, mm -hmm. um, which is brilliant for, for shading opportunity. They were happy to say, you know, yes, it's a risk, everything is a risk, but it's worth it and it's worth making the change. So, um, you know, really, really important decision um, in the history of Wimbledon. The other thing it's also enabled us to do, which we think is, is a tremendous positive, is even out the schedule in yes. the way that it's played. And so it's a lot fairer for the players. It's more consistent with the experiences that they have everywhere else at the other Grand Slams. So now the fourth round split over the Sunday-Monday. No more Manic Monday. Yeah. No more Manic Monday. But also the uh, quarterfinals are now mixed over the Tuesday and Wednesday. Ah. So you've got men and women playing on both those two days. And that is the fairest way to, to run the schedule um, for the tournament. And again, it's consistent with, with the others. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really significant. The funny thing, of course, is that the people who sort of bemoan the change the most are, are as you say, those of us. Uh, who used to enjoy a calmer day yes. on, on Middle Sunday. Not, not total rest. Um, I always really enjoyed being here because it was such an unusual day, yeah. unusual atmosphere. Um, and that will take a little bit of getting used to, but it's a bit like running a marathon. When you know you're running a marathon, it's easier. Whereas if you think you're running a half marathon and then you have to run a marathon, it's horrendous. Yeah. Well, as someone who's run a marathon, you, you know about that. A long that. Well, time ago, <laughs> a very long time ago. I remember helping with your soundtracking for that a bit at the time. Um, you did, you did. Anywhere else uh, you'd like should to talk? Should we have a look? We're going to peek through oh, the sure. uh, doors. Oh, sure. Yeah, oh boy. Way. So we're opening the glass door. The centre court, walking towards centre court. And we're now going through the double doors. 
So we won't, we're not, this is being kept until Monday. Mm -hmm. So on Monday, uh, Djokovic will be the first person ever to walk out through the central entrance, um, but we'll just go around the side. Mm -hmm. So basically the backdrop will op opens up sliding sort of panels and yes. players will be able to walk out uh, through there directly and then it will shut again so you won't see, the, it'll still be a consistent backdrop behind them visually. Yes, yeah. exactly. So we're now just standing on the edge of centre court um, and uh, I forgot to mention the new umpire's chair. Oh yes. So there is a, a new chair which has been uh, cleaned up, it's considerably more sturdy than, okay. than the old chair if you compare um, pictures. And it's also carrying a really lovely uh, Centre Court 100 um, logo. Yeah. And this is where, um, I mean, you probably wouldn't remember, but the inside of the court used to be concrete, and we've now made it all green. So ah, it yes, just feels the, the ground, yeah. uh, nicer. Definitely. Um, I also see, I just in terms of now that we're in the seating bowl, the press seats I know have changed probably little interest to anyone about the press that we have, you know, no longer tables there. I know that's a visual, one visual change. Um, and uh, yeah, so there is there more seating or more space because of the sort of tent structure you said being removed because we're kind of in that part of the stadium now. So there's not uh, we've added some more accessibility seating. Okay. Um, but we haven't added uh, more seats. Yeah. What we have done is actually slightly extended the court. Oh yeah. So you can see the mowing stripes here. You can see the additional court space that's been added oh, so there's two new stripes basically like a whole like roughly like almost a meter of court is new yeah on each end which will just give the players a little bit more space um particularly one rafa nadal uh, although he'll probably still use it um and uh yeah it's looking pretty lovely i have to say that's interesting because i remember in cincinnati last year i don't know if you remember daniel medvedev was playing and he ran into a camera that was on that was mounted on the back uh, back wall of the court, you know, positioned right on the back wall of the inside of the court. And he was upset that this camera was in his way. But that camera had been there for, you know, more than two decades. But no one was playing as far back in the court as Dino Medvedev for those two decades and never really had a problem with it, or very rarely, if so. And we're seeing players physically, you know, you mentioned it all, Medvedev is in this category too, Zverev, I think, does this, returning so far back from the court now and playing and starting rallies back there. How much is that something, I guess, that you're saying Wimbledon is adapting to that a bit potentially? Um, or how much is that something that just, you know, not every stadium, obviously, in every court has the ability to, to expand. So how much have you thought about that as a challenge of to the physicality and the tactics of the game changing when these spaces are still usually finite? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's kind of our, our general challenge is that things will change and it's how you adapt to them and how you react. And some things are, are, are not possible. I mean, this, this structure... Is, is what it is, you know, we, we could make a decision and say, oh, you know, what if we were to suddenly try and add a whole load of extra seats so that we could increase the capacity? Mm -hmm. You couldn't do that while, without fundamentally changing the character and structure of this building. Yeah. And so that's not a change that, that is likely to happen. But I think particularly in terms of changes in player behavior and habits and what they need, think about the player facilities. We've now got ice bars in there, physio rooms, nutrition spaces, all of these things that players didn't have you know, 10 mm -hmm. years ago, let mm -hmm. alone 20, 30 years ago. So it, it, it is constantly evolving. Um, you can see the uh, cross-hatching I was talking about. Yeah, so it's these sort of X's that basically, I think Roland Garros has something similar, used to as well. Mm -hmm. um, these sort of, yeah, crosses in the in the woodwork or whatever that is of the, of the side walls. So it's a nice, yeah. uh, nice little touch. Um, speaking of expanding or growing, 
Um, I don't know if this is the geographic place in the grounds to do it, but Wimbledon's footprint will be getting a lot bigger uh, with the purchase of the land across Church Road. How much is that something that's going to transform the experience for people attending the tournament here? Oh, I mean, when you think about transformations in Wimbledon's history, and we're now just walking out of Centre Court, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll go up uh, St Mary's Walk. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, when you think about transformations, it's a, it will be as significant as the move to Church Road. Hmm. Um, it will triple the size of the grounds. Wow. Um, it will allow us to have a, a third show court that is really befitting of, of, of a tournament like Wimbledon. Number two court, I actually really like, and we can see it now because yeah. we're back looking at St Mary's Church. It's sunken into the ground and it feels like a sort of gladiatorial atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But in terms of location from the hub of the tournament, it's a, it's a bit of a challenge to, yeah. to get to. And at 4,000 seats, it's it's not necessarily of the stature that you want your third show court to be if you look right. at what the USTA's done and, and the new... Australia, um, yeah. Well, and the new court in, in Paris. Yeah, the, the lovely. Um, so that's that's one of the big things is that it will enable us to have a, a third show court um which we're calling the parkland show court okay um the other really significant change is the move of qualifying mm. so qualifying is currently staged as you know you've been a, f- a very faithful attendee yes. in Roehampton. my favorite weeks um, of the year really i'll just pause for a minute here and just point out across the road is the new uh wimbledon indoor tennis center ah and this has been constructed over a couple of years time uh, right through the pandemic um, and this is our indoor courts but significantly or maybe boringly it has an underground car park and so all of the courtesy car operation is now over there and there is a tunnel underneath the road and so the players from next year will come under the road and straight into the Millennium Building. Okay, so they're getting dropped off right at the door there. Yeah, exactly. Parking is everyone who's ever run a sporting event knows major, major issue. It is. Yeah. It is a challenge. Especially and in this kind of urban area, too. Well, suburban, but still. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you were saying about qualifying yes. in Roehampton. So, um, and, and as, as, as much as we have tried to invest in those facilities, and there have been a lot of changes this year, yeah, actually. definitely. Um, it, will, it never feels the same to the players as being here on the main grounds. Mm-hmm. And that is something that all the other Grand Slams do. And... So to be able to deliver that benefit for qualifying, not just in terms of what it means for the players, but also what it means for the community in having more tennis to come and see. You think about the extensions you could build around qualifying, whether it's tennis clinics, whether it's opportunities to get into tennis. I know the USTA, US Open has a fan experience week that mm-hmm. you know, they've really tried to build up their own character. You think about what we could do um, in collaboration with the LTA becomes quite significant. Yeah. Obviously, the addition of all of those courts for qualifying also means we can transform the practice opportunities. So, talking about car parking space, <laughs> the other thing that is a great challenge is practice court space. Yeah. And um, being able to give the players more than what they get today, which is 45 minutes on half a court, yeah. which doesn't, again, feel quite right, um, is something that we're... Um, very excited about the third aspect sorry i'm on no, roll now good good the third aspect is um what it means for the community yes so essentially today it's a private golf course yeah. and you walk past it every day and you see you know a lovely landscape but you can't go in 
And what we're going to do is that half of the land, which we can't use for tennis because it's uh, bumpy and there are a lot of ancient trees, will become a public park. And so when you think about, I hate to use the word legacy, but when you think about actual impact and benefit for the community, we're basically creating a new park that will be the biggest park in London since the opening of the Olympic Park Mm. in 2012. And that is really significant. There's a lot of biodiversity stuff, woodland walks, habitats, all of that kind of thing. Um, so it's huge. One of the things that struck me at uh, Roehampton in a good way this year is it just felt a bit more built up. And there was one of the things there was in addition to some more stands, there was also more food options. And there were sort of food trucks and like food stands. And like uh, one food truck serving like, you know, sort of New Orleans themed like crawfish, you know, uh, po' boy kind of food. And there's a uh, place serving like Lebanese food, which is very popular. And those are not honestly like taste profiles I associate with Wimbledon, which is a very typical, you know, British strawberries and cream thing. How much, I guess, in terms of modernizing Wimbledon, could things like that ever become part of it? You know, like having a Lebanese food stand on the grounds for to use that particular example. That's a really good question. I mean, food is such an important part of not just this experience but you know increasingly any any experience any day out that you're having um i think our threshold for rubbish food has definitely gone (laughs) gone up um and and i suppose what we want to do and again this is another one of our uh what's the word not balancing acts but considerations is how are you providing the traditional range Mm -hmm. for those who want it the the equivalent of the cucumber sandwich and the coronation chicken and the strawberries and of course we're still one of very few major events where you can bring in your own food yeah um the picnicking and that's such an important part of the culture um whilst also providing a a choice and providing people you know what they want so there is you know all sorts of different asian inspired food here you know fusion that kind of thing um to look at how sushi's completely taken off and that certainly wouldn't have been a thing here 20 years ago so i i think you know you 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 never know we all kind of take inspiration from what we see around us and what we experience in in a in a high street as it were yeah um and i think with the parkland the opportunity especially in that uh, qualifying week to create more of a festival vibe yeah and and do those types of things would be tremendous yeah no i just thought that like wimbledon and food trucks was not something i ever imagined together but it was very pragmatic and tasty just a nice part of, of being there very quickly got used to and excited about having having those options well and you think about the enhancements of the queue experience mm. that will also come in time uh with the the wimbledon park project you know why why not i mean you know the those people who camp overnight in the queue have maybe been a little underserved and, yeah. and, and we could certainly do do more for them um in terms of this term in particular one thing that's going on here is the lack of ranking points this year and i was talking to a couple players at qualifying actually who were disappointed because they were ranked in like the 110s in the rankings on the men's side especially and thought oh there's gonna be an exodus of players uh not playing and so i'm gonna get in the main draw for the first time it's gonna be great and then it didn't really happen there wasn't really a major walkout of, of players. There's been a very, very small handful of players. I think only really one, Ginny Bouchard, who's on a protected ranking, who's explicitly excited that is a reason for not playing. Um, how much was that uh, a challenge this year at all for, for the tournament? And have you been, I guess, heartened by the still really strong fields 
minus obviously the players who, who were banned uh, from Russia and Belarus that have, have turned up for this event, even if it is quote unquote pointless. <laughs> oh, kaboom. Um, I mean, I would say it's obviously been a, you know, a challenging period for, for everyone in the sport. Firstly, because of the situation in, in Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. you think about what the Ukrainian players are going through, how challenging you know, it will have been for the Russian players as well. And, and it's definitely revealed some challenges that existed in the sport already mm-hmm. when you think about governance and the governance structure and, and how the sport works together. Um, I think what we, you know, would would always believe, and and the players have reiterated this both in some of their comments, but also in the fact that they're here, mm-hmm. is that there is something about Wimbledon as one of the Grand Slam events that makes it special beyond the impact it has on your, uh, you know, performance and how that is measured week on week. Mm-hmm. Of course. Uh, from a financial perspective, playing the Grand Slams is very important to to the players. And certainly during COVID and and what we were able to do even without staging a tournament and providing a kind of prize money in lieu contribution, it, we know how important that is. Can you, can I pause there? Can you explain what that was to, that you guys did for the players during Wimbledon? I'm not sure everyone really knows about that. Oh yeah, no, sure. So obviously, um, you know, I still dream about it, but um, in 2020, in the, in the height of the pandemic, um, the, the board here took the decision to cancel the championships rather than stage it in a in a very compromised environment when we would have had no public safety support, we would have had no health services, we probably wouldn't have been able to open. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and given that that cancellation happened, obviously the players missed out on a really significant earning opportunity. It's brilliant that the other Grand Slams were able to go ahead. Um, we were very fortunate to be in the position of having an insurance policy um, and that insurance policy had a specific provision to be able to look after the players. And so as a result, we were able to pay prize money in lieu to the players. It was an average amount averaged across everyone who would have qualified virtue of their ranking, yeah. direct entry, um, which was, was really appreciated. And uh, I'm not sure anyone was, was expecting it. And, and it was a really, really important thing to do. Yeah. So. I mean, you know, we're, we're standing here kind of in between centre court. We can see number one court. We can mm-hmm. see the hill. We're outside the media buildings. Um, it's, it's pretty buzzy. We've yeah. got some, uh, some ball uh, boys and girls walking past us. Oh, is that who they say? They're in their school uniforms. They're in so. their school uniforms, yeah. Um, and, and it's a very, very special place to be. And I think yeah. it feels particularly special because it hasn't been like this since 2019. Yeah. And it's been wonderful to reflect that in, in the player field. So... Yeah, you know. One other thing, uh, parallel you mentioned with having the two, literally two-sided coins, a good analogy of Wimbledon and the Queen's Jubilee. Um, this tournament's affiliation with the royal family obviously goes back a long time. We were started at the at the uh, George V plaque of when he opened this court. Uh, they sort of served as patrons of the club for a long time, um, and that sort of governmental connection, I guess, to the extent that the royal family is government still are you know effectively constitutionally in this country um how has that sort of been i don't know highlighted by but things going on this year and that connection and sort of i don't want to say pseudo governmental state that wimbledon has but it is absolutely a national treasure of this country and a very front-facing part of, of of britain yeah, that's an important point, and I think it probably got lost a little bit in, in the heat of the various announcements coming out. Um, but 
you know, we, we are different from many countries in that the government is very involved in the support of sport and the support of major events. So things like bidding for the Olympics, uh, the Euros, all of those are at government initiative and with government funding. We, Wimbledon doesn't have government funding, but we still have a very close relationship with the government. And that was proven to the utmost last year with the context of the pandemic. Wimbledon in 2021 would not have happened without government support. Um, and, and that's something that you know, we, we will all you know, very much remember. So when you think about what happened um, you know, in, in, in February, March, when the Russian invasion took place, yeah. Uh, you know, there was a widespread response from all sorts of industries, creative industries, big brands. You've got big brands pulling their businesses from Russia and so on and so forth. And the UK government is deciding how it should respond. And as you know, the general sort of response was one of a programme of sanctions. And the decision was taken that as part of that programme of sanctions, sport should be one of the mechanisms. And so the UK government issued guidance but they made it pretty clear it was directive guidance um, to sports events essentially saying we're only comfortable with Russians competing on UK soil and benefiting from that given Russia's very long and, and well um, recorded history of using sport for propaganda if you can absolutely guarantee that those individuals are competing as neutrals and that is a very difficult thing to do. They wanted that to be done through the process of declarations. And in the declaration, you essentially had to say that you had no links to the state, you had no state funding, you were not gonna, you were not gonna speak in support of either the president or the war. Um, and and you know, that was sort of where they left it. And they did say, we appreciate this won't work for many, for some, and therefore we'd support um, you know, bans. Um, so- Bans, I guess you're saying, to take players out of the position of being stuck, if, of having to of having to sign something, a declaration that could jeopardize them back home. Yes, okay. it, it, exactly. And and you know the sort of underlying suggestion was visas and so on and so forth. And and you know it was a as has been well documented, an incredibly difficult situation for for the Wimbledon board to take. Lots and lots of different factors considered, and lots and lots of discussion and, and debate. And ultimately. What what they what they came down on is that if if we are not prepared to compromise player safety or that of their family, we're not prepared to put anyone in that position. In these situations, you know, committing neutrality is very hard, and um, and so you know, regrettably, the 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 least good bad decision or the best no the best bad decision uh, was uh, regrettably to decline their entries very nuanced very complicated everyone's got different opinions um, but that's ultimately what was believed to be the only option for Wimbledon in these circumstances was the ATP WTA points uh, revoking uh, consequence of that anticipated it was definitely considered um, and the board weighed up a a lot of considerations Um, but uh, yeah I think one thing that everybody has said is that if this leads to broader changes in the governance of the sport, then maybe that's one small positive out of what's been a challenging situation for everyone.
we've seen other, on the sort of tennis uniting, and if you want to walk in any direction, happy to keep moving uh, front that became a you know sort of flashpoint with the Roger Federer tweet uh, during the pandemic, like, hey, what if the men's women's tours just you know merge and got together, and wouldn't that be a fun idea? And this sort of strange pseudo casual musing he put on Twitter. Um, how much, you know, the, the, this has been a tough time for the sport in a lot of different ways, D- different rules at different places, whether it's, you know, responses to things going on in China, whether it's responses to vaccination rules, things like that. There's this sort of different fracture points that are happening in the sport as well. And I guess I'm wondering, as you, you know, know very much about this, one of the seven big, you know, kingdoms, I call them in tennis, or the four Grand Slams, ATP, WTA, and ITF, how much is it still a challenge to come together and there is some coming together for example the netflix cooperation i think is actually one good uh you know version of joining together to give this uniform access across all those stakeholders Um, but obviously so there's still a lot of uh disagreement or asymmetries whatever you want to call them happening in the space how do you see that sort of going yeah i mean i think that everyone in tennis recognizes that we we have the most amazing sport because it's truly global it's truly balanced uh, the caliber and quality of the athleticism and what they deliver on the court as individuals and mm-hmm. in pairs and in teams and we should be doing everything we can to make sure that that sports appeal is being maximized and that it genuinely is claiming its place amongst some of the best sporting events, franchises, opportunities to engage with that, that we can. And it's year-round, it's genuinely mm-hmm. year-round. Um, and there are some scenarios where fragmentation works against that opportunity, and that is something I think that everyone in the sport feels that we can address. So the Netflix documentary is a brilliant example of all of those stakeholders, and I was lucky to be part of that process, getting together and saying, what a wonderful thing this could be for the sport. Yeah. I'll say here and now, we're not trying to do Drive to Survive okay. because tennis is a very different sport from Formula One and that's something that we've stressed repeatedly. But it will give an insight to people into the wonderful world and the caravan that players and their teams go on when they, when they travel the world. and yeah. They turn up in each of these wonderful places or, or kingdoms, as you say. <laughs> I think there are some elements of the sport, though, that are some of that appeal is rooted in the fact that it's not all the same. It is rooted in the fact that the events are different and they have their own characteristics and they have their their own differences. And this may not mean as much to your listeners as as to some here in the UK, but um, I used this description the other day and I'm going to test it out on you. Okay. If you take the four Grand Slams, for example, there's been a suggestion that they're a little bit like the Spice Girls. (laughs) They're all a little, they're all better because they're different. If, If we all try to do the same as each other, we would be poorer for it. That doesn't mean that we can't work together as a collective. And there's a few things going on in the kind of Grand Slam collaboration space. We've got a Grand Slam merchandise range that Mm -hmm. we're testing out. Um, Anyone who wants a key ring, they're really nice. Um, And some t-shirts and so on. And and so there is is a a one tennis view. Mm -hmm. There is a Grand Slam view. And then there's an individual view. And actually what we need to do is work out the right way of making all of those things work together for the benefit of, of the sport. Obvious follow-up question then, which Spice Girl is Wimbledon? Well, it has was, been known, yeah. or it has been suggested that we're posh. I was thinking that. That's the obvious answer, right? I think that's, yeah. As I was cycling through them, that's uh, 
and yeah, but I guess post Ginger Spice Girls, which are only four. We can swap Ginger and give her a wild card for somebody else. We'll see. Um, <laughs> so on that note, one other sort of, because I know obviously you're incredibly plugged into other sports and sports business and stuff and your connections and, you know, been to lots of Super Bowls and things like that and lots of stuff I haven't done. Um, are there any major sort of takeaways from the wider world of sport and trends, especially maybe coming out of the pandemic, that Wimbledon has borrowed from or learned from? Uh, that you've you've picked up from wherever it may be in sports yeah i'd give you i'd probably give you two so the first one relates to the physical experience and this is not necessarily a pandemic related learning but i think just having the opportunity to go and experience uh other events is that one of the things that makes this place unique is the fact that people have a wonderful day out Mm -hmm. and so it's incumbent on us to genuinely make sure that that day out is as wonderful as it could be. So we're standing here now kind of on the path up to the hill. Mm-hmm. We're in an area called the Rose Arbor. You can see number one court. You can see center court. We're outside the broadcast center. We can see the Isner Mahout plaque, always a personal favorite of mine. See the Isner Mahout plaque. Yep. Um, and uh, we've actually done a lot of work with the Disney Institute mm. to try and make sure that everyone working here has got a common mission for guest experience and i'll read to you the common purpose for guest experience at wimbledon it's called the wimbledon way we have it on the back of our credentials okay and it is together we create joy so i hope i'm making you joyful ben (laughs) and extraordinary moments by giving everyone an unforgettable wimbledon experience so whatever your role, whether you're me, whether you're someone taking, checking tickets at the gate, whether you're serving strawberries, that idea that every little moment counts and that this overall aspiration is that people feel really joyful. Yeah. That's also led to some other improvements. So I mentioned the kind of improved signage and stuff in Centre Court. There's these wayfinding uh, device structures that we put in. We've Which are redone big, map, big maps. Yeah. Big maps. Sorry. <laughs> I'm mean, using less people. I, I can see what you're looking at. I don't know if people mean, know what wayfinding device means, but it's a big map. <laughs> a big map. But we've redone the maps. Yeah, they do look different. Yeah. So the maps are now sort of physical. They've got people on them. They've gone from portrait to landscape. Yeah, they yeah. have. Yeah. So you're situated in where you are. We've put much better court signage on. So court 18 has got oh, yeah. signage on it. Number one center. People would come in and say which court where am I I don't know where I'm going and all about putting yourself in the minds of the guests so that's been a really big focus and then the other thing I would say you know the learning from the pandemic and also from what lots of other people doing is making sure we're delivering for new audiences and younger audiences Mm -hmm. so for all the parents out there listening Wimbledon Kids new content series specifically targeted at five to ten year olds uh two hero characters blade and bounce oh boy blade blade of grass lives on center court <laughs> with her 56 million cousins and very nervous uh made very nervous by bounce because constantly giving blade a haircut it's ball uh. um and it's just it's fun it's trying to get to people in in new ways and the other one i would mention is the virtual hill okay so the hill is, is one, one in brooklyn Oh, no, I'll mention that okay. too. So uh, similar similar vein. The virtual hill is a virtual experience. It's our sort of tiptoe towards the metaverse, doing it in partnership with American Express. And if you think about how the hill has become an iconic fan destination here, yeah. but people can't necessarily get there. So how do you have the opportunity to experience it virtually wherever you are in the world? We love virtual experiences post-COVID. Um, and it's really fun. You can basically have your own avatar, dress your avatar, run around, complete challenges, earn Wimble coins. Andy Murray will pop up and give you a high five and give you a virtual <laughs> selfie. It's really fun. So we'll, hopefully we'll get you doing that. And then the last one, you mentioned the hill in New York. So 
Um, it's another part of the same thing, which is that we recognise that we can't get everybody here. Yeah. And one of the ways of falling in love with this place is by coming here. So how can we take it to you? Yeah. So picking up the hill, recreating it in Brooklyn Bridge Park in New York on the final weekend of Wimbledon. You've got Manhattan in the background, Statue of Liberty in the background, ESPN's programming on the screen, people serving you strawberries. Go get it. It'll be fun. No, it's, I, was, I sent that to several people I know in Brooklyn who... I thought would be into it, so hopefully they go check it out. It's definitely a cool thing. It's like you said. It's obviously we're on the in, on the grounds, very physically around the place, but this is a global touchstone for people still, and it's something that very much just still holds the attention and imagination of the world uh, for a hundred years now. So again, and a hundred more to come. A hundred more have. to come. Let's definitely hope so. So here's to your tremendous contributions to the first hundred years. Uh, congratulations for those, and Thanks, we look forward to everything ahead in the. Uh, next century but we've enjoyed this one in the meantime and uh yeah happy birthday women thank you and thank you very much thanks for listening folks